Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello! And welcome to the Robot Apocalypse edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the century. Mm-hmm. We, are, we are zooming out this week and... Well, let me just tell you, this is going to be a good one, because not only do we have Kathy O'Neill, the author of Weapons of Mass Destruction, the greatest book ever written. Hello, everyone. Um, but we also, standing in for the randomly flaky Jordan Weissman, we <laughs> That's have... That's not fair. <laughs> We have a much better finance blogger. So, so true, true fact, I, um, I kind of sort of like opened up a job for Ryan Avent once. Kind of. Kind of. Kind of. I, um, I moved from Portfolio.com to Reuters.com, and in doing so, opened up a finance blogger position at Portfolio.com, which was filled by Mr. Ryan Avent for how long? Two weeks. <laughs> All of two weeks. It was not the most awesome of bequests. <laughs> it was a good experience. It was a learning experience. Um, yeah, basically, very short. Basically, two weeks after I left, they took a look around, realized that without me, there was no future, and shut the entire thing down. Absolutely. That's one story. Yeah. Um, but Ryan amazingly um, managed to recover from this um, blow. And what are you up to now? Uh, I am the the economist where I had been blogging uh, before welcomed me back with uh, with open arms and uh, I've I've never there wasn't, dared, there, wasn't there wasn't one of those like Bloomberg again. rules at the Economist saying that once you leave like even if it's only for two weeks you, you have to serve time in the wilderness is yeah. that a rule of Bloomberg that's a rule of Bloomberg no no reentry at Bloomberg including Michael Bloomberg I asked him to guess not <laughs> um, so you're you're back at the Economist you've been back there ever since. Mm-hmm. And you somehow, in between writing learned treatises within its august pages, have managed to publish a book. I have indeed. Which is called? It is called The Wealth of Humans, Work, Power, and Status in the 21st Century. 
And it's an excellent book. So we are all, talk- all good books have to have subtitles nowadays, by the way. Yeah, what is, what's up with, with, with subtitles? Um, I think it's because, you know, they really want a catchy title. And but the, a really really catchy title usually doesn't have that much information about what's in the book. Yeah, especially there was the the, the kind of wave of one word titles. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Blink and yeah, it's like, like how much like, information does that give yeah. you? Salt kind of does what salt. it says on the tin, right? It's, you about, know, it's, it's, it's a book salt. about yeah. salt. You don't really need this. Okay, subtitle. all right. Sometimes you don't need it. Sometimes anyway, this is this is a, a very clever title, "The Wealth of Humans," um, and I would guess that some subset of our listeners will be able to understand what like the three different meanings thereof there there are a few different different meanings it's uh you know i'm uh i'm sort of saying that i'm the next adam smith which i guess is a bit you know um, bold of because me. adam smith fam- famously wrote the wealth of nations you see it rhymes yeah. yes yes um but then it's it's also referring both to kind of the commonwealth that we generate as a society, the wealth of humans, uh, and then also the fact that what seems to be going wrong with the economy right now is that we are faced with a wealth of humans, a, a glut of labor. We have billions of the things absolutely. all over the world. Mm-hmm. We're having to try and work out what on earth we're going to do with them all. That's right. So that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the book. We are going to talk a little bit. And, of course, like the reason why we're calling this the Robot Apocalypse Edition is because like in the face of the, these billions of humans, all of whom want work, we also have the robots who are stealing their jobs. So we're going to talk a little bit about what happens to humans when the robots steal their jobs, and specifically about what happens to bank tellers when ATMs come along. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, the one thing we haven't talked about in the past couple of weeks in great depth is this whole Wells Fargo fiasco. So don't... Yeah, we we knew we weren't talking about it. We were just waiting for Ryan to come <laughs> on because Ryan is awesome. Well, we did. I had it in the numbers round. We but did we didn't, have it yeah. in the numbers round. And then we are also going to talk about the robots just completely taking over in the form of the Amazon algorithm and what that means yes. for people shopping on the internet. But yes, Ryan, let's start with the book. Um, and yeah, let's start with this whole question of the billions and billions of people who mm-hmm. need work. Like, historically, how have people got work and how is that changing? Well, so historically, you know, when we think about what technology has done, we say, you know, it, it destroys jobs, but it also creates a lot of new jobs at the same time. So you get rid of kind of the people who are manning, um, you know, certain kinds of loom uh, but then you create others uh, in in related jobs and people to sort of balance the books and, and all sorts of other things. And so we end up with more jobs overall and everyone's kind of happy. Um, but in practice, this this process is never super neat. It's always kind of messy. And so even back in the 19th century, we had to do things like move people around, move them to new cities. Uh, we had to get them educated and uh, do all these these things to help them adjust. And the, the kind of the rub this time around is that we – we have this digital revolution that is kind of uh, re- replacing people uh, at a really fast pace. And we are having a much more difficult time helping workers adjust because the cities where a lot of the jobs are being created are, are super expensive, like San Francisco and New York, because we've already given the kind of uh, the basic education. Uh, we've already made that kind of a mandatory thing that everyone does, goes through secondary school and then goes on in a lot of cases to university. And it's it's not easy then to take people and say, well, now you have to go get a PhD in you know computer engineering or whatever. So these these levers that were always there before to help us adjust aren't anymore. And so this glut of labor, these, these billions of people looking for jobs, uh, the way that they end up finding work is by accepting low pay. 
So one thing that I found interesting is, and, you know, very useful for someone like myself who almost always thinks about the United States, like when I think about economics, is your international perspective. And you talk about sort of the normal evolution of economies going through industrialization and then such and such. But you you make the point that nowadays when you're a country going through industrialization, it happens at a much faster clip and there's problems with that. Can you talk about that? Yes. So one of the the things contributing to this this abundance of humans, uh, this wealth of humans competing for work, is this hyper globalization, as, as as it's been called, that took place over the last twenty years. And it used to be the case that if you wanted to grow rich, you had to kind of start your way at the very bottom and build your industrial base from kind of making plastics and toys and slowly work your way up to cars and then computers and things like that. Over the last twenty years, that totally changed. Companies like Apple could use information technology to monitor stuff that was going on half a world away. And so suddenly you had supply chains spreading out all over the world. And that kind of supercharged the pace of globalization because you didn't have to learn how to do everything from the ground up. You could just say, OK, well, we can uh, have a factory here and assemble things and everyone else will do kind of the hard bits. And you know, one of the side effects of this was suddenly we had over a billion workers in China and India and other places competing with manufacturing workers in the rich world. Um, which had a very kind of destabilizing effect on a lot of manufacturing industries and communities uh, there. Of course, it's also made great change uh, in, in the places that we're doing this rapid catch-up. But the, but the insight you have in this book, which I think is, is absolutely true, is that if you're an old-fashioned country growing up in terms of being able to make everything yourself, what you wind up doing is building a bunch of institutions, you call them social capital, which lay the groundwork for prosperity, basically. And if you are, by contrast, somewhere like China, where you are building widget factories, which are extremely good at making widgets, that doesn't build those institutions in the same way. And a global economy dominated by supply chains in this sense makes it actually really hard for countries like China and India to build those solid institutions which will help them have prosperity over the long term. Yeah, so it, it turns out that if you take advantage of this this really rapid uh, development, it ends up being really shallow. That you you don't build, as you say, the institutions, the the uh, financial networks, the kind of managerial capabilities, uh, the the systems to train people and, and allow them to kind of manage all the complexity of the global economy. And so, um, when the the kind of you know the end of the road comes and you've kind of maxed out what you can do on global uh, value change you you kind of don't have anywhere else to go you're not you don't have the capacity to be uh, super innovative necessarily um, if for whatever reason high labor costs or other things uh, the factories go away you're kind of stuck and that you don't have another you know the next rung on the ladder isn't there I want to talk delve right into that idea that you have about social capital because. I honestly am unsatisfied with it as a well-defined concept, but I do think it makes a lot of sense in the following example, which you give in the book. So you talked about widget factories, and the idea with widget factories and, and in the context of capitalism is if you know, you're paying too much for widgets, another group of people will be like, hey, we'll make widgets for you, right? But with social capital, which is this new kind of, kind of amorphous, squishy thing, but it, it really... It's valuable. It's also, it accounts for 80% of the capitalization of the stock market. <laughs> right. Um, 
it, it, it kind of makes that scenario much harder to understand. In the, so the example you had was like car companies. So we know that car companies are like deciding which state to, to, to settle in and all the states are vying for their attention and saying, we'll give you tax credits and all this stuff. And the question is like in a market, free market economy, why don't people just say, hey, well, you know, screw that. We'll just start our own car company. And the answer is that actually it's the culture and the sort of institutional knowledge of the car company that makes it doable. People can't just up and make a car company. Right. And, and one of the things which was going through my head when I, when I read that was that there is one very famous new car company. It's called Tesla. And Tesla, fascinatingly, has basically rejected the supply chain model. And instead, it's building this gigafactory, which is going to do everything in one place. And one of the fascinating things about Tesla is that while all other car companies can produce a car every like 15 seconds or something, the one thing which Tesla's been really, really, really bad at from day one and and has always undershot its expectations by massive amounts is sheer volume of production. It has this, the most high-tech factory in the world, but it doesn't have, it just, that, that one factory, if you try and do everything in one place like Tesla does, it turns out that getting the throughput that is perfectly normal for every other car company in the world is unbelievably difficult. And that could actually be Tesla's big Achilles heel, that it just doesn't have the ability to produce cars fast enough. Well, I think, I mean, I think you can bring that back to, to the idea of social capital a bit in the sense that um, other car companies have been in existence and the ones that have survived uh, in, this com- in a highly competitive market uh, have done so because they kind of learn as institutions. They're like organisms and they kind of figure out how to evolve in a way that they can identify problems and fix them. And so, you know, famously Toyota uh, developed this new kind of culture where they were able to very quickly uh, identify problems on the line and fix them. Um, and subsequently, all the other car companies kind of learned to, to do this. I, I think that's the kind of thing that you can't just, you know, no matter how, even if you've got a genius like, like Elon Musk kind of running the show, he can't know every single aspect of, of, of what in the production process, like the back of his hand. Exactly. There's a whole bunch of the details of what goes on inside Foxconn that Apple is basically unaware of. And that's kind of the genius of the market is that you throw a bunch of money at something. And then if it doesn't work, then the money flows somewhere else. And so there's competition for the way to do things most effectively, which you don't have inside a gigafactory. You don't have that kind of market-based competition, which makes things more and more effective over time. So, I mean, I I like the idea of social capital in this example of car manufacturing, but I feel like um, because it's hard to define and hard to measure in other places, it becomes kind of a circular argument. Like we talk about social capital as what makes America so rich, but then on the other hand, you know, you also say that most countries lack social capital, which is why they're not rich. So it almost seems like a circular definition. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I'll be the first to admit that it's a really woolly concept. It's really hard to define and basically impossible to measure except as kind of a residual, like whatever's left over. Um, I, try to, I try in the book to, to give a, a pretty clear definition of what I mean uh, by social capital, and that is uh, patterns of behavior that people adopt in particular contexts. So, um, you know, if you take someone who is a merchant in sub-Saharan Africa – they have a way of doing business there. Um, if you then allow them to immigrate to the United States, um, they are capable of learning what the different norms are here and functioning in a different way. And as it turns out, those different norms allow that merchant to be much more productive and profitable. 
Uh, and I think it's, it's even the, the kind of way this works is even more clear cut within firms. Uh, firms often have very weird, uh, very well-defined cultures. And those cultures are there basically to help the company figure out what matters and make decisions based on that information. And it's it boils down to small things like, you know, does your boss like it when you come in, uh, you know, unprompted and, and say, you know, this looks this is, looks dumb, this thing that we're doing here, we should fix it. Uh, or is there something more formal about the way things operate? Those little things all add up into patterns of behavior that everyone kind of understands, not written down anywhere. Yeah. But it's like the code that makes, uh, you know, makes a piece of software run. And it's true. And I really do appreciate the fact that you mentioned Bill Gates as an example of someone who like, yes, he's a genius. But if he had been born in a different place in a different time, he would not have succeeded the way he has. Um, and it, you do spend quite a bit of time, just like you just referenced, um, talking about, you know, if we wanted to help humans, then we would allow much, much more immigration. Um, could you talk a little bit about why this that's true and why it's not happening? Well, I think one of the implications of the view, uh, which I have in the book, that social capital matters uh, is that um, one of the best ways to make people rich is by moving them into um, communities in which the social capital seems to be pretty effective at generating wealth. And so that could be uh, a, a big company like Apple. It could be uh, a place like Silicon Valley uh, or it could be a country like the United States where the institutions are you know, able to allow people like Bill Gates to get rich. Um, and, um, you know, we've there's been a lot of effort within economics and social science generally uh, to figure out, you know, how can we go to a place uh, like Rwanda uh, and improve the institutions there, right, so that they can be as rich as everyone else. I mean, the, it's, 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 it's not like there's any miracle to the technology uh, or the knowledge. It's all, you know, more or less public. Uh, they just need to be able to take advantage of it. Um, but it turns out that's just really, really difficult to do. Well, every time you bring that up um, in, in the book, it just kind of riles me up because it's kind of – I feel like it's overly decontextualized from the actual history that like basically Europeans have had with Africans. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, we try so hard to help them. Right. You know, and it's like, um, could we add a little more historical <laughs> right. context to that? So there, there have been lots of times in which we've uh, in which we've been less than helpful in our efforts to kind of – And that's not irrelevant to the no, idea no, of not. us trying to help them now. It's not like – theoretically impossible it's but like it's not even a question of whether we're trying to help or not the fact the fact is that although there've been i think three small middle income countries which have managed to transition successfully into high income countries like singapore singapore south korea and taiwan basically no one outside like small Asian countries has ever been able to do that. This is a really, really hard thing. And it's not a function of whether or not, you know, quote unquote, we in the West are being helpful or unhelpful. Um, I mean, probably at the margin, we're unhelpful. Right. Um, but, but still, there's a bunch of Western countries which did manage to do it. And it does seem to be incredibly difficult um, going forwards. And there might be a legacy of imperialism and colonialism, which makes it even harder to do that. But that's like a given. That's that's a sunk cost now. And the question is, how do you try and overcome it? Right. Well, one of the things that I think you do to try to overcome that is to redefine who we are. Right. You know, so often the conversations, especially in, around elections, are, you know, about us. Like, how do we bring jobs back onshore and stuff. It's and this is decidedly yeah. decidedly an international scope. We're talking about international immigration. Like, how do we help the most people, even if it's not particularly political, politically viable? Yeah. That there's, like, I mean, and this is one of the themes in the book, that you know, there's a 
few relatively simple but politically basically impossible things which would make the world a lot better off. Number one, free up a bunch of the zoning restrictions in places like Silicon Valley and New York City and London. Number two, um, you know, massively increase the amount of international migration and, you know, possibly do something like an international humanitarian passport for refugees. You know, that would just yeah, the, it, it doesn't cost much to do those kind of things, and it creates a huge amount of wealth. And but he also even, talks about basic income guarantee, by the way. Well, uh, well, so we I don't know if we have time to talk about <laughs> basic income, but I do want to talk about the real question, which you raise at the um, beginning of the book, and you don't particularly answer, maybe because it's not entirely answerable, which is, we have this connection in our mind between work and value. Work is how we get the money to buy things. Work is how we define our own value. When you become unemployed for any length of time, that's like medically disastrous for people because the whole way we define ourselves is in terms of what our jobs are, what how valuable our work is. As more and more jobs get taken by robots, and assuming that the world continues to become wealthier and we manage to come up with some kind of redistribution mechanism, to what degree is that going to go away or will it? Or is it is is there is this concept, is this linkage between work and self-worth just sort of hardwired into humanity? Or do we just need to redefine what work is? I think there will be some some sort of social redefinition of, of not just what work is, but what it means to contribute to to society. Um, but yeah, I mean, work is one of the fundamental institutions in society, and it's an incredibly convenient one because it's a way both to kind of encourage people to do things and give them the purchasing power they need, uh, while also kind of you know structuring their day. And um, it, it, I don't think we're going to find a single thing that solves all those problems in the future. But, uh, you know, I, I think whatever we come up with, we'll need to do a few things. It will need to redistribute wealth in some way so that people can, can, can buy food and put a roof over their heads. It will need to provide some sort of structure um, to people's lives uh, because they seek that. And not just structure, but a sense of, of, uh, of agency, a sense that people uh, are doing something that's meaningful. Uh, and then we'll, it will also have to have some sort of uh, social currency attached to it and that, you know, the people involved in whatever this is, be it volunteerism or, you know, community service of some sort, are uh, contributing in a way that then entitles them to to be a part of the community and, and receive the redistribution back. It's that kind of bargain that that, that society strikes that uh, that is so so nice about work and that we're really going to miss when we lose that. And, and so and, and the universal basic income basically does one of those three. Right. Exactly. Right. Okay, so let's. Um, the last thing I want to say about the okay. book is that there there are references to Star Trek, which is good. It's always yeah, good. And, and our, our good friend Manu Sardia is actually cited in the book, which he's very excited about. I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's three percent on your favorite products at Apple, two percent on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and. 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So let's get specific. Let's move from generalities to specifics. And let's talk about the ATM, which is one of the most efficient and well-designed robots that you know has has come along in the past few decades and it transformed the world of retail banking 
Um, it used to be that when you needed to get money, you had to have to go to a bank teller, and then the bank teller would count out your money and you know write down on a piece of paper how much money was left in your bank account. And there was this whole thing which Americans still like to think is an important thing called balancing your checkbook. <laughs> I do that. You do, do that? You really? Yeah. Oh, my God. Wow. I still ch- write checks. I prefer them over PayPal. Like just, Wow. Yeah. So, but anyway, that, that whole thing, I mean, Kathy, you know, notwithstanding, <laughs> is, has gone the way of the dinosaurs. And there's this much more convenient thing called the ATM, which just does all of that for you. And the obvious consequence of the rise of the ATM was that all of the bank tellers would lose their job because their job was replaced by a robot. That didn't happen, did what it, What happened? Kathy? I mean... I, I keep on wondering to the extent to which it didn't happen. I mean, we, obviously, there's more ATMs than there used to be banks, but most of those ATMs are just standalone. There are standalone more ATMs. banks than there used to be banks. That's this true is, too. This is what this there's is just what, way too many banks. I will tell you what happened because yeah, you know, this is what what the economists like to call a stylized fact. There are like slightly there are you can quibble with the details, but broadly <laughs> speaking, what happened is that the rise of the ATM meant that you needed fewer workers per branch. You didn't need as many tellers to be counting out money and to be taking the money in and sending it out and that kind of stuff. With fewer workers per branch, the cost of running a branch came down substantially. So you could open up more branches. And so that's the first thing that happened is that more branches opened up because that's how you get customers is by being convenient. People weirdly but overwhelmingly tend to open bank accounts just at like whichever bank is on the corner of where they live or where they work. That explains my neighborhood because there's like every single conceivable bank in my neighborhood. But then the second thing that happened is that the job of the teller was transformed. It stopped being a question of writing numbers down on a ledger and adding up, you know, and, and giving out cash. And it became basically a sales job. And this is what happened at the most successful retail bank in the United States, possibly of all time, um, in, you know, in any country ever, this bank called Wells Fargo, which um, Warren Buffett is a massive fan of and has made lots of money on. What Wells Fargo did more successfully than any other bank was it said, OK, tellers, you're not tellers anymore. You're, you're, you're the frontline sales staff. And your job is to sell financial products. And we are an institution which sells a whole bunch of financial products. We sell credit cards. We sell loans. We sell loans of credit. We sell mortgages. And when people come in for whatever reason, and there's always some reason that someone goes into a bank, that's our most um, exciting opportunity to sell them new products. So just go out, sell, 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 sell. Now, when's, when's the last time you, you, you went to a bank to talk to a teller? I'm just curious. The last time I did it was, I think, in June. in June. I did it this morning. Did you do it this yeah. morning? Okay. Did they try to sell you on something? And I, 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 they did try to sell me when I went in on, in June. Okay. Because my experience is that I don't think I've ever been I – won't, I won't tell you who I bank with, but I, um, <laughs> I don't think anyone has ever tried to sell me something oh, in no. the bank. It's been happened to me. Anytime I call them, I'm you know, asked multiple times whether I'd like X, Y, or, or Z financial product. But. Well, I can, I, can, I can tell you, Ryan, that number one, you've been in England too long. Uh, <laughs> but no, but number two, you, you don't bank with Wells Fargo. Because if you had banked with Wells Fargo, you would have experienced I, I would now have eight accounts, you would whether or not have, I need because, them. Because it rhymes with great. Wow. This is so as wow. as the listener I'm not making this up. As as I'm sure most of the listeners to this podcast know, the Wells Fargo is in deep trouble right now because it because what happened was that this pressure on the tellers to sell financial products 
um, wound up misfiring in a disastrous way. And they were told that like every customer needed eight financial products. This was not a number which was carefully arrived at through some kind of like series of anything. It was just a number which was arrived at because I'm not making this up. It rhymed with great. <laughs> I think I have eight. I mean, it's like, it's like partly because I have kids and they have like we have joint accounts and stuff like that. But I do want to say that I'm a Bank of America customer, um, shamefacedly. And every time I go to the, if I just deposit the the a check or something at the teller station, then I don't get upsold. But if I, for any reason I need to talk to the person in the front who's like in a suit, then absolutely they bring me into their office and tell me I need to you know spend at least forty five minutes talking about all the financial products that. I could I could be making money off of. So, yeah, in any case, what happened at Wells Fargo is that the way they tried to incentivize the tellers to sell lots of financial products was really stupid. Um, they basically said, sell lots of financial products, like open lots of new accounts or you will be fired. And the tellers would try and open lots of new accounts, but often it's impossible because like sensible people really don't need eight accounts unless your name is, you know, unless you're Kathy. Um, <laughs> and and so what the tellers would wind up doing, even though they were genuinely told they shouldn't do this because it was it's not good for Wells Fargo on a business level, is they would just open fake accounts in their customers' name. Or they would tell the customers that, yeah, you can get that, like, you know, extra 20 bucks you want, but you're going to have to open a credit card account. And don't worry about it. You'll, you'll get the credit card in the mail, but then you can just cut it up. Or they would just open credit card accounts without even asking the customers and or, and put in fake email addresses for them. And it was a complete scandal. And they wound up having to pay a $185 million fine. So I had and- a little bit of background with this stuff because I was talking to the SEIU, which is like the fastest growing union. Um, in, uh in, in the country. And they were trying to unionize bank bank tellers. And I actually went to a meeting and talked to them when I was an occupier, um, you know, talked to them about why they, you know, why they shouldn't necessarily trust the banks that they've been working at. And we heard all sorts of stories from the bank tellers talking about these high pressure tactics and how they felt a lot of pressure to do things that they didn't find ethical. After, and this was five years ago. So this is, doesn't come to, as any surprise. Um, I'm sure you saw, Felix, that a bunch of people are now coming forward, Wells Fargo, bank, banks, salespeople, um, saying that they actually complained about the ethics of the bank of the Wells Fargo quota yeah, that system. That doesn't get you very far. Yeah. They got Wells fired. Fargo. Yeah. They called the whistleblower like ethics hotline and then they got fired. Like That's how Wells Fargo dealt with that. So, Mr. Avon, yes. what does yes. this teach us well, about the rise of the robots? I, I think actually there's a, there's a very interesting story here uh, in that uh, if we think about the banking industry, it's not actually all that competitive, is it? I mean um, – Because it's really hard to compete on price. It's, it's very hard for, um, for like, you know, bank A to say, move your account to bank A because – we are cheaper than bank B. Moving an account is an incredibly painful thing to do. And people, A, don't really understand how much it costs in the first place because most of the costs are hidden. And B, for whatever 30 bucks you're going to save, it's just not worth going through that kind of hassle. Right. Absolutely. Um, so it's 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 not a very competitive industry. Uh, it's one that's saddled with all sorts of regulations. And when I, when I think about the times I end up going to a bank, it's not because I needed some special kind of you know, service that, that only tellers could provide. It's because I had to do something silly to like tick a box signing a lease form or something that needed a, a particular kind of check. I was, I was jumping through regulatory hoops, basically. And these things could be eliminated and probably without any great harm to society if we sort of streamlined uh, the rules. It's not necessarily in the bank's interest to, to get rid of these rules. But I, I think the broader point is that these jobs aren't necessarily very productive. 
um, I kind of loved I loved being in London because uh, for whatever reason, the retail banking there just worked fantastically smoothly. It was super easy to transfer money. Contactless payment just worked like like magic. Um, and I basically never went into any bank because I never needed to. Uh, and uh, I was much happier <laughs> and more productive. And I, I, I think in a way there's a trade-off there between, you know, we can create categories of jobs that survive if we are willing to protect them in various ways. And we don't necessarily need to do it in the way that we've done in the banking industry. We could also do it the way we've done in healthcare uh, uh, or in education by essentially making it very difficult to make these jobs more productive because people don't want necessarily to get online diagnoses or online education or because it's because there are difficulties in, in competition there. But I think, you know, where it is possible for, for the robots to come in and, and, and replace people, they, they tend to. So I have, I'm, I'm going to just mention one other job, which is briefly mentioned in your book, which I want, which, which was the l slightly more surprising end of like the future of labor in the world of the robots. And like what happens when the robots arrive? What kind of jobs do we have? Um, we haven't forgotten about this, darling listeners. Um, this is going to happen. It's going to happen at some point in the foreseeable future. We are going to have an entire episode devoted to craft beer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, with, with actual live craft beer. With oh. actual live craft beer. And the economics can I come back for that? You can totally. You okay. are totally Actually, can I just uh, formally uh, invite anyone who's ever visited Slate Money to be, be part of that? <laughs> We're Excellent. just going to have a huge like party <laughs> and, and drink beer. Um, and what's fascinating to me is that you look at craft beer or like, you know, naively, you look at the craft beer industry. And you see something very old-fashioned. But you make the argument quite convincingly, quite, quite convincingly, I think, that the rise of the craft beer industry is actually a function of the rise of the robots. I think so. I mean, there are categories of, uh, of employment, and, and I think it represents a growing slice of employment, where the value is all in the fact that machines weren't you know, being used to create the stuff at industrial scale, that it was guys kind of lovingly making... Uh, the craft beer or the cheese or the chocolate or whatever artisanal thing is the latest. It's, it's thing what to be our, featured our in the friend Shane Farrow is called TQE, the quaint economy. Exactly. Um, and I think the reason we're seeing this is because when you live in proximity to people who are uh, benefiting massively from these sort of technological changes because they're running hedge funds controlling tens of billions of dollars or they're sitting atop a, a software firm that's fantastically profitable – you can skim off a share of the value that they're generating by selling them really expensive products that they like because part of the joy of being a really rich person is you can buy these sort of luxury craft goods and show them off and enjoy the fact that you don't have to have the same mass-produced stuff as everyone else. And so I think that provided that we can allow people to live in close proximity to wealth, there's all sorts of opportunities to, to, uh, to, to do this sort of thing. And I, I also tell a story about Raleigh, North Carolina, where I grew up, which is kind of this growing tech area. And surrounded by lots of farmland, it um, used to just be people kind of, you know, growing mass-produced crops or raising hogs for to sell as cheap ham. And but which increasingly they're producing things in kind of in an artisanal way and selling it at high prices to all the like new restaurateurs in in the research triangle. Uh, you know, making ten times what they're making on a on a on a hog before. Um, and so that that's that's one way to kind of spread the wealth a little bit, but it's it's limited by proximity. How how many people can we fit in these these metro areas that are being successful? 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, so that's <laughs> the, the human jobs. Yeah. Um, but let's move on to... The what you might call the robot jobs. Yeah, there's this there's this evil robot running Amazon.com, yes. and it's His name is and Jeff it's, Bezos, and it's um, biased weirdly in favor of Amazon.com, and <laughs> and, and according to ProPublica, this is scandalous. Kathy, what is going on here? It is pretty. It's pretty. It's pretty misleading, I have to say. Well, like first we have to create the backdrop, which is you know Bezos claim that that. Amazon is Earth's most customer-centric company. And the idea was that he was bravely, courageously inviting other sellers onto his marketplace because customers should get the best deal possible. And that was that was the idea. And that is definitely the way that people feel like they're experiencing their purchases on Amazon. It's not completely true. It turns out that people do not always get the best price to be to show up in the what's called the buy box. Now the buy box is sort of the thing that Amazon pressures you to buy from. Um, you, you don't have to buy from it. You could go to a sort of comparison shopping. Let's say you want to buy some glue. There's something that shows up in the buy box, and then you, you could go and click on saying, oh, I'd like to see more comparison shopping. Then a long list of things ranked somehow shows up. And it, if you look to see what how it's ranked, it says it's pli- price plus shipping. Turns out that's not actually how they do it. The the ranking is a secret algorithm, secret pricing algorithm that that Amazon won't really explain. But what ProPublica did was they figured out that for certain sellers, including Amazon and other sellers that are sort of within Amazon's um, inner circle. They pay a fee to be, quote unquote, fulfilled by Amazon. Fulfilled by Amazon um, sellers. The shipping isn't part of that ranking system, so they they only get ranked by their their bare price. Whereas the other ones, the other sellers that are not in the fulfilled by Amazon inner circle, they do get ranked by their price plus shipping, and it's even more complicated than that. It's more complicated, but let's just leave it. Let's there just stop the there, yeah. Being, uh, because there are two different things going on here. I'm going to take the 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 other side, like this is no scandal at all um, side of the argument, and I'm going to say for two reasons. Number one. Jeff Bezos is being customer centric here um, because if you look at the experience of me, if you look at the experience of the people I've talked to about this, overwhelmingly, not uh, unanimously, indeed, the thing that we're looking for when we're buying a thing from Amazon is not necessarily I can get it seventy five cents cheaper. Like we are interested in more than just price. We are also interested in just knowing that there's not going to be a problem and the thing is going to arrive, it's going to arrive quickly and I don't need to worry about whether and when it's going to arrive. And that fulfilled by Amazon thing and the fact that the reason why I like buying from Amazon directly or from Amazon's warehouses directly where Amazon has physical possession of the goods and sends them to me is that I know that that is going to happen. I can trust that that will happen. If I buy from anyone else, I don't have that certainty. And so if Amazon puts that at the top of the list, what that is doing is it's being consumer-friendly to me because that's actually what I want. I want that certainty. That's the first thing. The second thing is 
that 90% of the people who buy from Amazon or are fulfilled by Amazon don't pay any shipping. So this is not affected, affecting people with Amazon Prime. Is that what you're talking about? Amazon Prime or just having enough stuff in your cart so that you don't need to pay a shipping fee. Okay. So it's people – I agree with you. And I have Amazon Prime, so this doesn't affect me directly. Although, like as I said, there is a little complication in this algorithm. I don't necessarily – even when the shipping isn't a, a factor, I don't necessarily get the, the cheapest price. So I think you and I are different. Like I don't I don't feel good and about spending more money because it's coming from the Amazon warehouse personally. Unless I was assured that it would actually cut down on like the amount of cardboard being used or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Um and I, I just I guess what I'm saying I, I think the the scandal here is that it is misleading to customers on the one hand because it does really look like we are getting the best deal and it's just not true. And second of all, it actually creates this weird dynamic within the companies who try to sell anything anywhere that in, in order to get into the inner circle, they have to pay. So it's a real um, antitrust question. Well, yeah, that, I, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think – so the first thing I thought of uh, in, in kind of looking at this story and reading and reading about it was that uh, – how much it reminded me of, of just a regular old grocery store, right? Because you've got – if you go into a grocery store – um, there are all kinds of different places on the aisle where you know things are particularly visible and brands compete to kind of have their goods in those places. But then you can also get kind of the you know the Harris Teeter brand stuff. Uh, and so um, some of this is price discrimination, right? So you know, uh, you know Harris Teeter or whichever grocery chain, we don't need to give Harris Teeter free uh, advertising here. But, um, <laughs> they know that there are some bargain hunters who will look and spend the time to find things uh, that are cheaper. And other people don't care. And so if you put stuff that's more expensive in a convenient spot, they'll just grab it. And that's just a way of kind of uh, price discriminating, which happens all the time. We don't necessarily think is, is scandalous. And you see this also with It's really kind of, a convenience charge yeah. more than price discrimination. Uh, well, it, but it's actually, it's actually more than that. There's this weird kind of – I mean, if you're being harsh, you could call it like a protection racket thing that Amazon has going on. Because in order to be fulfilled by Amazon, you need to pay Amazon a minimum of 15%. Um, and similarly, in grocery stores, you get big companies like Procter & Gamble or Unilever paying grocery stores millions of dollars for placement or Coca-Cola, people like that. You know, If you see a big Coca-Cola thing at the end of the aisle, that's because Coca-Cola is paying for it. <laughs> Amazon and the grocery stores are not just making money on the stuff that they sell. They're also making money from the directly from the um, distributors and manufacturers. I'm just going to jump in and say that, like, my book just came out, and like, when I go to Barnes and Noble, it's really near the front of the store. But someone told me that Barnes and Noble makes more money from p- paying for placement, like you just mentioned, than from selling books. Isn't that incredible? That's so it's, that is incredible. And I don't know if that's actually true. Like, I have to check that. But but the point being, like, it's a big part of what Barnes yeah. and Noble does. Well, I think I mean when you've got this kind of two sided market, right? The thing that you worry about is that there uh, that there's you know, economies of scale or network effects or whatever, but you end up with just one, one market, one marketplace, one seller who is able to be the place where everyone else has to be. Has to be. And therefore has all kinds of market power. And then in that case, we really have a problem because they're able, you don't have a choice. You know, there's, there's not the competition that you want to see. Uh, and in that case, something has to be done. Now, the question is, is Amazon that powerful? And, and, the, and the answer is, I think, Yes. Probably yes, but you know, now that Walmart has spent $3 billion buying Jet.com, maybe maybe there's going to be maybe. a competitor. One of the most interesting things about this article that um, ProPublica wrote about this is just the description of the different algorithm wars that are going on. So the sellers 
um, even the ones that are not fulfilled by Amazon, especially them, they have all sorts of reasons to try to game this algorithm that is essentially secret. And they are building all these complicated bots to fight with the Amazon pricing bot. Really interesting. And the one thing I did learn from Julia Angwin, who wrote the article, is the way to game the algorithm if you're just a buyer, if you're a consumer. And that's this. The secret is you buy from sellers who are not fulfilled by Amazon, but who have a very high approval rating, somewhere in like the high 90s. That makes you happy and and, makes me happy. And who have more than like 10,000 ratings. Yeah. So if you do that, what happens is that what's essentially happening is that those sellers are taking all of the money that they would normally spend on Amazon, on, you know, paying Amazon to do all of their fulfillment for them. And they are spending that money on trying to provide the a, a better than Amazon level of customer service. Um, we should specific, reward them. Oh, and you can reward them by buying their stuff. And one of the places that it really shows up is in returns, that if you try and return something to Amazon, it's possible, but it's non-trivial. It's a little bit of a pain. If you try and return something to a typical company on Amazon, which is not fulfilled by Amazon, but has a very, very high customer service rating, they will either make it unbelievably easy for you, or they will just say, you know what, just We'll refund you your money and you can keep it anyway. That's what I'm talking about. Wait, hold on. Let's let's go into that because that seems like the the way to go. (laughs) So that's the way to go. If you you want to arbitrage the Amazon algo, that's what you do is you buy from the people who are not fulfilled by Amazon, who have very high customer service rankings, and they will bend over backwards because the only way that they manage to retain that ranking is by making all of their customers extremely happy. That's a really good point. Yeah. But there's, it runs into a limit, right? And like, if we don't all co- cooperate to do this, then eventually Amazon can just tighten the screws a little bit, and and, and certainly Amazon, their Amazon can can change increase it. its fees for being fulfilled, or yeah. it can change the algorithm, or the margin. It can just stop being a platform altogether and say we will only sell things if we can fulfill them. Mm-hmm. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's time for the numbers round. Um, Yeah. I'm going to start with five, 500 million, which you might know what it is. It's the number of Yahoo accounts that were hacked in 2014 that we just found out about yesterday. That's a lot of accounts. That's just a, just a shit ton of accounts. Yeah. Did you, did you have a Yahoo account? I'd never had a Yahoo account. I, I apparently did have a Yahoo account. I had no idea that I had a Yahoo account, but I got an email from Yahoo today saying, your, your Yahoo account has been compromised. I'm like, ooh, I, I guess got, I had a yeah, Yahoo account. I got that too. Yeah. And Verizon didn't even know about it before they purchased Yahoo for, what, $5 billion? Yeah. Oof. They didn't know. I just find that outrageous. Do you, do you think this is a materially adverse piece of information mm-hmm. which would allow them to back out from the acquisition? I, I, that's a great question. It is a great question. 
I, I, I feel like A, it is that if they wanted to back out, they could, but that B, it's not actually so material that they will want to back out because it's all part of this. I mean, the way I see it is it's all part of this big sort of global spy versus spy war against the NSA by other state actors. And it's not really showing up in sort of things, you know, boring things like identity theft on a consumer level, but it's all part of like every single country wanting to have massive databases of every piece of information they can have in the As world. I understand the reason that they finally came came clean about it, it was because these some of these accounts were the information was on sale. Yeah, it, 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 for, for an, so that's pretty commercial. A ridiculously low amount of money for like three bitcoins, you could buy like millions and millions. Of, <laughs> that's of, really of, not the of, point. But but it it wasn't you know it didn't include credit card numbers at least directly. Ryan, well, so my number is four, uh, which was the number of uh, interest rate hikes that Stanley Fisher said we could expect. In 2016. He Ooh. said that in January. And here it Stan is. Stan Fisher, who literally wrote the book on macroeconomics. No one knows more than Stan Fisher. And yet Which means somehow, nobody knows anything. <laughs> nobody knows anything. We're, we've managed to get how many so far? Uh, we've had zero in 2016. Whoops. I, we, I just totally called that. I just want to, for the record, <laughs> remember everybody? Everybody remember. remember us. I called it. Yeah. So there'll still be two more opportunities before the, the year is over. Uh, but, uh, but even two if, is less than four. Two actually. is less than four. Yeah. Um, my number is 2.42. Um, 2.42 is the number of cents per kilowatt that Abu Dhabi has now agreed to pay for electricity from a massive new solar-powered electricity project. It is, I'm going to say this, the cheapest contract for electricity ever signed anywhere on planet Earth using any technology. It's amazing. It, 2.42 cents per kilowatt is not just way cheaper than the electricity you get from natural gas plants. It's way cheaper than just the cost of the natural gas going into those plants. So if you were wondering when solar power was going to become cheaper than like fossil fuels, it has now happened. That at is least so in Abu Dhabi. good. Um, although, interestingly, again, this comes back to... Um, Ryan's wealth of humans thing, that the reason it's so cheap in Abu Dhabi is partly because, obviously, Abu Dhabi has a shit ton of sunlight, which is very abundant, and that's great for solar power. But it's also because Abu Dhabi has a shit ton of unbelievably cheap labor. And so mm. the cost of installing this all of these solar panels when you get like cheap immigrant labor in the Emirates is way, way low. Mm-hmm. Yes, and they don't extend very many protections to those to those immigrant workers. I, it's it's a great deal for electricity. It's not probably such a great deal for the workers yeah. who are having to install it. Well, okay then. I think that's it. We've had three numbers. We've had a fantastic conversation with Ryan Avent, whose book "The Wealth of Humans" is available in all good bookstores and also Amazon. <laughs> um, thank you, Ryan, for um, turning up for this thing. Thank you to all of the like massive number of various slate producers who are involved in this show, which is <laughs> about four times greater than it normally is, and I'm not even going to attempt to name them all. They're in two different cities, and it's, it's complex. So thank you to you guys, the listeners. Keep the emails coming. The email is, as ever, slatemoney at slate.com. I have a question for you this week, which is, do you, are you just... 
comforted by listening to this podcast on, on Saturdays or whenever you listen to it? Or is it something which you would actually like to see some mi- other stuff mixed into the feed, like, you know, one-on-one interviews with policymakers or, like, random stuff like that? Do you want change or do you want, like, a comforting same thing every week? That's continuity. Continuity. I'm going for continuity. Uh, so that's that's the question for you this week. Um so yeah, so check out the whole roster of Panoply podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. And we will talk to you next week on Slate Money.